Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. And today we have a special guest on. It's Tim Banks. He's a lead developer advocate at De Dell Technologies. And he's also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu master, top ranked in, in the world. It, it was a pretty interesting conversation. I really appreciate that he led with that, Ethan. Yeah, that was fun. So uh, so if you get lost in the jiu-jitsu conversation, it only lasts three minutes or so, but it was super interesting. And it leads in very nicely to the overarching theme of this discussion, which was strategy. We have a lot of thinking we do about cloud and cloud strategy, whether you should be bringing workloads back on premises. And if you do what that looks like and how it impacts finances and all of that, it was... Uh, it was all too short of a podcast, Ned. I, I feel like we could have gone another hour or two with Tim. He had so many insights. Yeah, but you know, I, the main takeaway for me was really just like strategic thinking and having having a plan and understanding the larger context and picture. So enjoy this conversation with Tim Banks, lead developer advocate at Dell Technologies. Tim Banks, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Super pumped that you could join us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your history in tech? Because I know you've worked for many interesting companies like AWS, Equinix, and the Duckbill Group, and I'm certain that's given you a unique perspective in the industry. Yeah, it has. But I, I so I'll start off with some people ask me, you know, tell me about yourself, and a lot of people will lead off about being like a tech nerd or something like that. I will not do that. I am the five-time consecutive and reigning Pan American Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu champion in my division. I am the two-time American national winner and a three-time winner of the silver medal in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in my division, as well as uh, holding an international ranking of number two in the world. Now, Jiu-Jitsu's come up in a few different podcasts. I've listened to different folks that have engaged in that. I'm trying to remember who and when I've heard that before, but it's not karate, it's not, and it's not several other disciplines. Can you give us the, what's the quick compartmentalization of jujitsu as a practice? So there are folks who have t-shirts that I love that call it Mexican ground karate. Um, and it's not exactly true. Brazilian jujitsu is, um, it is a grappling martial art uh, based on throws like you see in judo, um, as well as positional play like you see in wrestling. Uh, as well as joint locks and ch chokes as submissions. Um, it is based on mostly leverage and controlling distance, uh, both on standing up and on the ground. Uh, Jiu-jitsu is just as dangerous off your back as it is uh, up top or standing. Um, there's no real striking. Well, I mean, there's not what you would most people consider striking, but if I go to trip your, if I go to an ankle trip on you very aggressively, it's going to feel like you got kicked. Um, but uh, but it is a it is a sport that is originally designed to neutralize differences between size and strength, uh, and it is very. And there is no ideal jujitsu body, um, and which I think is is fantastic. Like if you can have a very very long reach, and maybe you can do well with that. But I, who am five foot eight and built like a bowling ball with corgi limbs, uh, will still manage to get around people who have quote unquote ideal athletic bodies. So you know. Yeah, a good friend of mine practiced Brazilian jiu-jitsu for a while, and she did not have what you would call an ideal body type for what you'd think of a typical martial artist. But she had a great time with it, and I think it it really played to her strengths of being a little more grounded and able to to grapple with people. So that that's very cool. What I'm curious what drew you to that, because I, I find a lot of the times our professional choices also bubble up in our personal choices of what 
what we pursue in terms of, of, of things to do outside of work. So I think it's interesting. Jiu-Jitsu is something I've had an interest in since I um, saw UFC 1 back in 1993. We were all discussing about how we are of a certain age. I remember seeing UFC 1 as, as an 18-year-old back in 1993, which I thought was very interesting because there was this person, very small, you know, uh, looked very much out of his out of his element um, compared to these big, strong grapplers and, you know, uh, uh, strikers and stuff you saw in other sports. And it didn't matter. He just wrapped them up, choked them out, every single one. Uh, and I thought that was amazing that not only could he, not only could he minimize damage, but he could also um, submit them all like that. I thought that was intense. I thought it was pretty wild. And there was never a situation where he looked like he was out of control. And I really admired that. And so I feel like one of the things that might have appealed to me about it is that nature of the very strategic nature of it. The uh, I'm funneling you into uh, places where I know exactly what you can and can't do. And therefore all your moves are predictable, which is really, which is people who practice jujitsu at a high level can do. And if you don't practice jujitsu at their level and you see them do that to someone, it's not, or you're the one having done it to you, it's nightmarish because nothing you do is the right thing. Every decision you make is bad and you go from bad to worse very quickly. You're just recounting my teenage years right back. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like you should take up a career in InfoSec more than anything else. <laughs> um, I won't take up a career in InfoSec because I don't have a problem clearly stating my identity on the internet. Um, and I feel like uh, in order for me to InfoSec question, and I don't look really great in baseball caps or, or and I don't like wear hoodies with my head over because my hair is fantastic. So I don't know that I'd be a fit for InfoSec um, in general. Ethan and I were discussing your hair when you dropped off for a moment and it is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Totally jealous, man. I can't. My hair's left me. I have nothing left. <laughs> but uh, no, I, 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 I suppose I could be in a lot of roles in tech and my, the skill sets that I have as far as when it goes to strategic thinking and, and um, identifying where I want to go with something uh, have helped me out a lot in my my career, especially engineering and architecture, um, especially reverse architecture or consulting with folks to try and get them to the place they want to be or trying to save them money on their bills, et cetera, et cetera. That really helped. But the the thing that I think is also really important is that uh, the thing that that I found that really helps me was in jujitsu is both being taught and teaching via conversations. Um, jiu-jitsu is not something where you just, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, right? It's very partner-based. There are not a lot of static drills or katas or forms in jiu-jitsu. Everything is based off a reaction to your partner or your opponent, right? So if you step a certain way, right, I can do these things. But if your foot's not there or your weight is shifted differently or your hand position is, is here versus there, I can't do anything, anything I wanted to do, right? So it's it's a lot of following and figuring out what people are doing, understanding what they're trying to do and relate that into what you're trying to do. Um, and almost a way of having a conversation with somebody. So um, if you take words away and you make it about movement and balance and position, jujitsu is very much a conversation, right? It's a debate. It's it's chess with mm -hmm. dire physical consequences. I, I feel like that should be printed on a T-shirt somewhere. 
Maybe it already is. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure Twitter bot has has already scraped this by now, and, uh, and is advertising it. <laughs> Entirely possible. <laughs> oh, I forgot. Wait, no. There's no bots on Twitter because Elon Musk got rid of them all. He did. That's I right. forgot That's about right. that. Yeah. And well yeah, done, yeah. To him. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Gg, bro. Gg. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting that you bring up the conversational aspect of of technology because I've worked in a consulting capacity before and. The worst consulting engagements I ever had were where people were not having a conversation across the table. It was the consultant saying, this is the way we do things and this is how we're going to do it, not listening to their customer. And the customer going, well, this is the way we do things and that's how we're going to do it and not listening to the consultant. And as a result, the engagement just went extremely poorly every time. Instead of having that conversation that you're talking about where you're learning from each other and coming to a good plan in the end. Nothing you do for someone else is going to be good without context, right? So if you're building an application, if you're delivering a consulting engagement, if you're delivering an infrastructure, if you're baking a cake, if you're building a house, it doesn't matter what you do, right? If you don't have context for the person who's consuming that, you're masturbating, right? <laughs> you're, you're, you're doing something one way and you don't care about the results. You're telling, you're not listening. Right. And that is really great for it's like karaoke, right? It's for the performer, not for the audience. Right. Um, but when you're delivering something to somebody, if someone has a need and they're coming to you for a service or a product or a good, you have to ask for how they're trying to use it. Otherwise, you're going to build something that's useless. Tim, one of the things you mentioned along the way here was that you help people save, uh, have saved money on their their cloud bills. I'm guessing that's part of your history with the Duck Bill Group. Uh, is that, how, how big of a thing is that still? Is that still a, a chief focus, a need that people is, are, are looking for? It is huge. Yeah. It is probably the number one concern. And, and, and I'll tell you, right? And we're all, all old enough to remember when the cloud first started became a thing. And what did they tell us? Oh, you'll save so much money because you're not going to be spending it all at once. You'll treat it like a utility. And then you can just pay every month for what you need and you don't pay for what you don't need. As if that was a problem with a data center. And um, data center, what they really were saying was like, well, data center, you have to have, you have to predict, you have to predict your capacity, right? You have to have forecasting and you have to make these purchases ahead of time, but then you have so much unused stuff or you don't have enough stuff, right? And that was like a promise of cloud, right? And you just kind of forget about the bill, but the bill for enterprises became huge and out of control. And every time you wanted to do something else, you paid more, right? Um, which is not the thing you saw in data centers, right? You paid for it one time, right? And the, you didn't have it, but you had a power. You had power. That was you it. may not have had the most efficient use of it because you were designing for peak load a lot of the times. And so, yeah, there was unused capacity yeah. laying around. But right, it was a cap capital expenditure. You paid mm -hmm. for it once and then you used it until it was unusable. And then so what ended up happening is customers got bigger and bigger, and bigger, their bills got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so now they had to re-architect their, their infrastructure and their applications for cost savings. And if they didn't, they just paid big bills, right? They had to architect for stateless spot. They had to architect for how they're going to do logging and, and observability. They had to architect for what, what does redundancy and resilience look like? Uh, that were different than they would have been before because cost was a concern, right? Um, they had to prevent you from using certain instance types. They had to take away credit cards. And so the, the cloud providers tell you, well, if you want to save money, spend more, right? And they're right. like, why don't you turn this OpEx 
back into a CapEx and commit for three to five years for, you know, 50 to $500 million a year to save money, you know, reserve an instance, right? Buy an instance ahead of time for this amount of time, although you're not actually reserving capacity, right? Because you may reserve an instance and still not be able to spin it up. Um, but we want you to pay for this instance ahead of time so you get savings. And once customers start, once once customers started doing that, and they're like, "Oh yeah, sure, we'll give you, we'll commit to spending this much either ahead of time or, or you know, before this time for however many, however many years." What was the advantage of going to the cloud versus having it in a data center? Right, and and on top of that, at least when you had the data center, you had an asset that you could depreciate against. You mm-hmm. buy reserved instances. As far as I know, the the auditors and accountants have not approved that as a as a capital expense you can depreciate against. Well, you can go through the thing of reselling a reserved instance, but it's not like you can lease out and get spot spot for it. Maybe you can, I don't know, but but not like you can just, all right, cool, we're done with these. We're going to sell these servers on the open market, you know, and get the money back for it. But the thing is though, again, you only pay for them one time. You don't continue keep paying for them. Um, after a while, you get your money back, right? Uh, if you compare it to the cost of a, of a cloud and they're like, oh, well, you don't have to pay for uh, data center folks. And I'm like, well, I mean, they don't, you got to pay them every month, but it's way less than my AWS bill. Yeah. And if you were coming from a data center model, it's not like all those people went away. You just, no, I hope, I hope them not. And your cloud engineers on top of it, or you yeah. force them to learn both and burn them out. And the other thing that happened is then you get in the, I was, oh, now that we're on cloud, we don't need ops. So you had like no ops and all this other <laughs> stuff like that. You're turning people that know how to code and you're trying to turn them into infrastructure engineers and you get some of the things that we have seen right. since then, which are not necessarily great. And then AWS goes like, oh, well, we'll pay you even more. So you have to learn even, learn even less or take care of even less. But the end result was you still have to pay more. Now, some companies, very small companies, agile, you know, that are very agile and, and don't have um, right now the the bandwidth, I will say, to recruit infrastructure engineers is very efficient, right? It helps out a lot. But once you go over a certain size, it doesn't help. And I say, and I say bandwidth because I don't say cost because it's not like you're not spending money. You're just giving it to AWS. So Tim, is you're having these cost savings discussions or, or, or did have and you're finding that, gosh, cloud is all of a sudden starting to look like the data center model. Has that been driving cloud repatriation or has that been driving, we need to re-architect our applications so that they run more efficiently in cloud and we can save money that way? There's been a few things that have been driving cloud repatriation, right? There's been compliance issues, right? Um, for some industries, right? It's still more practical to own your own um assets right than to than to lease them um or put them in a place where other people have access to and that's just for box checking i don't think that's the best case honestly but it is a driver right cost is a very big one um because sometimes you really cannot re-architect something for cost without significantly changing how you operate to the point where sometimes it's easier just to lift and shift into the into the data center i'll be very honest the the most Normal use case for repatriation isn't a total repatriation. It's a hybrid model, right? I'm going to take everything that I reserved for three years or that I would reserve for three years. I know what kind of CPUs they are going to be. I know what my capacity is going to be. And I'm just going to literally buy that hardware and run it in the data center, right? 
And that's the most efficient because there are some things that you really can't repatriate very well. There are some things that don't work well like that, that are not suited for data center, stuff like that. Um, gigantic pools of large data analysis and stuff like that. Like um, data centers haven't really answered the the multi-petabyte uh, object storage thing at low cost uh, like you can do on cloud, right? Um, but I will tell you this, if you're pumping out a lot of uh, bandwidth uh, to the internet, you're going to do it way cheaper in a data center than you ever are going to be on any cloud provider. Um, AWS, is, uh, AWS, Google, and Azure are all with like a half a cent per gig of each other on their list prices. Um, and I can tell you from behind the scenes, they're not too far off together in their, in their, um, in their private pricing agreement uh, prices either, but they're still going to be more expensive than you're going to pay for uh, out of a data center. And that's by design, right? Um, it's free to get in, cost to get out, right? Um, I don't know. I don't know what else that sounds like to you, but um, that's a business model that has been used exploitatively before. Um, and so if you do run large amounts of data being pushed out, especially in like, you know, media or something like that, um, you know, streaming media, uh, if you can have uh, enough storage in your data center, it makes a lot of sense to run it through there or any other kind of thing where you're going to be putting in a lot of data. It makes a lot of sense. You'll pay for yourself much more quickly uh, than you would pretty much with any other, any other use case. Um, you know, so you, there, there, there is a good hybrid uh, architecture that's basically based on a lot of known compute uh, on your in in a data center or in a private cloud that puts out a lot of data to to consumers of you know wherever they may be, and then you push other storage like longer term storage for analytics later on down the road into the cloud where the storage is cheap, the inbound, the inbound uh, network is cheap, and then you can spend your money doing analytics there uh, on the back end. Right. I, I think of some companies that went all in on the cloud native promises and started taking advantage of the specialized services in the clouds. They're going to have a real... Uh, real issue migrating any of those applications back on-prem because the same constructs don't exist. There's no Lambda on-prem, at least unless no. you want to rent AWS Outposts for uh, another monthly fee. Oh, uh, yeah, no, please God, no. AWS Outposts is... The fact that AWS Outposts exists, the fact that EKS Anywhere exists, the fact that Google Anthos exists tells you that that even the cloud providers know that there's, there, is, um, there is desire uh, and will for a lot of companies to move back on premise for for various reasons, and they're still trying to capture that revenue. But you're right to the extent, and and I will say this is a huge a huge gaping failure of the cloud native community is that you can run Kubernetes kind of really anywhere, and that's that's one of the things that you're really seeing is is it's um, coming ubiquitous almost. But but serverless functions has not really been, there's no standardized way to do it. So um, you get Lambda in one place, you get functions for other cloud providers, but there is no, I can just run the same library, um, you know, in a data center. I, I, I would probably say that's probably by design. Um, you know, the the various cloud companies have gone in on, on containers a lot and other cloud native technologies, but um, serverless just kind of went the way of the dodo as far as it comes to having a good open source solution for running serverless functions. There's a couple out there, but nothing with the kind of adoption that you would really want to see that makes it an industry standard. I would like to see that fixed. I mean, uh, uh, there are a lot of things I would like to see 
uh, as far as being able to schedule a workload literally anywhere, whether it's a cloud provider, whether it's um, in your private, you know, private data center. Now, folks will say that's Kubernetes, and I would have agreed with you a couple of years back, but now mm-hmm. Kubernetes is getting treated like VMware VMs were 10 years ago. Um, and the fact they're gigantic and they require a lot of overhead um, and they usually require a vendor uh, or, or a lot of expenses like that. And that's not the way Kubernetes was designed. It's just what Kubernetes well, what do you mean? Became. What do you mean overhead? You mean like just to, to get a cluster, a Kubernetes cluster off the ground that can start hosting containers? It's uh, it's a lot of overhead? Uh, to run Kubernetes in production at scale is a yeah. lot of overhead just for the control plane, just for the logging, just for the observability, just for the scheduling, just for, uh, you know, all these other things. And I'm not saying that that's, that that hasn't been necessary for Kubernetes, but what Kubernetes does now is not what Kubernetes was designed for. What are you getting at here? Yeah. So, so if you think about Borg, uh, when it first started and some of the things that Kubernetes was doing, it was doing very kind of lightweight stateless workloads, uh, to, to, you know, microservices that were coming out just, Hey, I'm just going to do this and then die. I'm just going to do this and just die, just do this and die a lot like serverless was being done now. Mm -hmm. Right. Or is I'm going to maintain a resilient load, a resilient pool of, of workers for this stateless application, um, but as folks started moving state onto containers, which was supposed to be ephemeral, um, once you start preserving state, you're no longer, you can really no longer be truly ephemeral, mm-hmm. right? State yeah, has to say somewhere. state is an oxymoron, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's just how it goes. Like, as soon as you will start saving state, but still run this, okay, well, now Kubernetes becomes different. It's not a container really anymore. I mean, functionally it is. I mean, I should say, I would just say like, like by how you call it, everything it is, but functionally it's, it's a VM now. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and you have to maintain, like people want to know insights inside to it. They want to know how it runs. They want all these other information that you wouldn't really care about so much if it was really a truly stateless, small, lightweight container. Right. If you, you threw enough errors. It does some work and it dies. Why do you dies. care That's about having all this highly instrumented container with all this right. observability? Yeah. Right. And so we're layering those on top of cloud-based instances, which we weren't supposed to care about either that we now care about. Right. Um, and we'll just say like, like the, the, the most inane thing I still see today is people who run a JVM inside a container, inside a VM, inside a hypervisor, um, you know, just all these layers of abstraction for different things. So it's like, I remember when I just used to be able to log onto a server, run a job and then go, right. You know, that was, and mm. It didn't have a lot of overhead, and I would like to see that again. You know, some some approximation thereof. Um, I know that there's folks working on that. Like the the project that I that comes to mind very quickly for me is Aura, um, which is done by Chris Nova, um, and and some other folks are they're starting to turn wrenches on it now. Which is just you know, it's a runtime. You spin it up, you schedule jobs on it, runs on on the runs on the on a bare metal server. You, you run jobs on it, and then then those jobs go away. Right? It's, it's, I think it's PID one or PID zero. Everything um, old is new again. Yeah. But but you think about it, like what have we layered on top of of layer on top of layer on top of layer on top of layer on top of layer? We have done this in the name not of simplicity, but changing where the complexity lies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're trying to take away complexity from the developer, but we didn't do that. Right? We're trying to make our, our engineering teams less complex, but we didn't do that. Right. We're trying to make our, our internal tooling less complex, but we didn't do that either. Right. Um, so we have 
very complex systems, even to do simple things still now. Um, and the notion of logging onto a server via SSH, running a thing, right, is gone now. I'm not saying we should go back to that, but I think there's some things we could have brought back to that where, you know, if it, how, how, let, me, let me put it like this. Do you remember the first time you played Quake online? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So first, first time I played Quake online was on a 56K dial-up modem. Yeah. Right. 32 people in, in, a, in a server. You know what those servers were? What do you think those servers were running back then? Oh, geez. Was it like 286s, maybe? No, I mean, they were, they were probably running. Like, I ran a Quake server on a dual Pentium Pro 180 with yeah. like half a gig of memory. Something like that, right? Running on dial-up, right? Because the code was so efficient. The gameplay was great. I still miss the gameplay from original Quake. The gameplay was fantastic. The maps, and it wasn't visually stunning, right? But the experience was still fantastic, mm -hmm. right? And I think that we have really, I, I think, I don't like the way that we have mutated and evolved what the user experience is as to what we have now. Do you think the biggest problem here is the excess capacity that people have available to them. Oh, absolutely. It's we have become reckless problem. with storage. We I have mean, absolutely become reckless with the amount of storage, with the amount of CPU memory. Because we have more of it, we use more of it. Right. Efficiency is unnecessary because just because of the nature of Moore's law, that the doubling of the number of, pro of you know transistors on the processor, the expansion of memory, and then the expansion of storage. And we had that at the data center level and then virtualization rolled in. It's like, well, now you can create 50 VMs per, you know, physical server. Mm -hmm. And then the cloud rolled along and said, forget about those bounds. It's boundless. You have effectively infinite compute storage and everything else have at it. And what we did is we built these abstractions on top of abstractions because we wanted to make it convenient and simple. And we didn't care about how much it cost. We didn't care about what resources were involved. Like if you think about it from a sustainability model, cloud computing is the worst thing that could have ever happened. Right? <laughs> because if you think about it, if we had a data center and we had to buy ahead of time, we know exactly what our power consumption is. We know exactly what our heat output is going to be. We know exactly what all these other factors are because we had to know ahead of time when we bought it. Now we don't care. Right. right? And then if we do care, we're going to trust Amazon to tell us how much is coming out of there. We're going to trust Google to say, oh, no, we're, we're carbon neutral, right? Trust Microsoft to tell us, no, yeah, hey, this is great. Sustainability is awesome. Mm -hmm. Why? Why, would we, why, would, why have we abdicated our own responsibilities to cloud companies, right? Well, it's, it's um, at the point now where new data centers are going up and there isn't enough power in the area to feed a new data center. And so the data center stand-up project is in conjunction with some sort of power generation that has to happen at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I look at places like, like, uh, like I remember Sao Paulo region uh, for AWS is still, I believe, some of the most expensive uh, area you have there because it's so difficult, mm. right? And so we're putting, they're putting more data centers uh, in an area that's already having problems with uh, sustainability, right? Not to say that we shouldn't have cloud computing presence in, in Brazil and in South America, but like, can we do something better than just creating infinite capacity in a place that we're already clear cutting for us? Hmm. 
Right. I, and, 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 it's, and it may sound like I'm a bit of a tree hugger. And, and to be sure, I'm not necessarily a quote unquote tree hugger, but I do think we should have an understanding and have a good realization of the impact that we have. And then we can make good data driven choices around that. Right. We should be intentional with what we do. And with cloud computing, we have become reckless. Because of the recent changes in the economy, do you feel that people are going to start really caring more about costs and efficiency? And maybe as they move workloads back to a more bounded area, that efficiency is going to rise in, in terms of applications and deployments? I think it could, but it's going to depend. And here's why. Right? It is very easy to lay people off. Right? People do it. You know, you can just make stroke a pen. Lawyers have to get involved, but really that's about it, right? And so they say, oh, well, we overhired. I think that's what the C, I think that's what the C levels are saying now. Mm-hmm. Oh, we overhired or we're cutting, you know, dead weight or something like that, right? Okay. We'll just, we'll accept that at face value right now because we're just going to play we're like we're naive. Um, but you notice they don't reduce the services. They don't really, they try to optimize. And I've seen this because it's when I get called in, right? They try to optimize what their communities, but they don't reimagine what the user experience should look like. Um, Think about this. Think about this. All right. How many sites or how many services do you have that you log into that have your email address, that have your credit cards, that have your home address, that have your, you know, demographic data, right? How many different copies of that are on different places all over the world, right? Um, Probably a lot. It, it, why? Why do they all need the same information? Why can't that information be just in one place? Hmm. And these places read it when you need it, and then it's gotten rid of when you're done, right? What do you think that would do for what storage looks like, what state looks like, and what the overall impact of what that looks like is, right? We don't, you know, we have AI, all the all the new uh, advances to AI were based on incredible amounts of data that were readily accessible to people that we just literally have laying around and have no control over because we've given it away in the in the essence of quote unquote user experience. Yeah, and privacy is definitely uh, an issue there uh, beyond everything else the the unbounded problems and I, I like the with the DID initiative is seems very interesting to me to have a dedicated uh, you know, distributed identifier that's unique to you and you have control over. Absolutely. That, that's Absolutely. very cool. Um, but I want to turn this back to the the cloud and, and the cost question in terms of optimizing code and optimizing applications. I, I know you're, you're at Dell now and uh, you were at Equinix before that. So you were seeing what might be more the repatriation portion of things where people mm-hmm. are I'm going to buy some servers and use those servers. Yeah. Are they now, do you see people being more careful about what they're ordering and their capacity and maybe trying to push back on folks who are trying to over provision? Some folks are, I mean, we were very honest, but a lot of times what they're doing is they're just trying to take their, the, the CapEx that they put in a cloud provider and put it in a less expensive CapEx in their own data center. Which is a, it's a good idea to do from a financial standpoint. But what really has to happen is, like I said, a reimagining of how you have, how you deliver an experience, how you deliver experience for the developer, how you deliver an experience for your customer, right? Um, the biggest hurdle to repatriation is delivering a cloud 
like experience in the private cloud. And now you can do that with like OpenShift and some other, you know, Kubernetes distros. You can do that if you, God forbid, were using VMware, the data center, and as well as on a cloud provider, like, you know, you can look to shift and move VMs around there. But, you know, how do you interact with assets and resources in a data center, right? Um, and it's not the same as it is in, in the cloud. And cloud has delivered a great experience for that. Um, and hardware manufacturers and private cloud folks are catching up, right? Um, but I think as that becomes more the case where you can deliver a cloud-like experience to your operations teams and to your developers, then the lift of moving into the data center becomes much more of a, of a procurement issue than an engineering issue. Because right now it's both. Right, right. We got used to the cloud model of operations, which I really like. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. someone who interacts with infrastructure as code a lot and does some some DevOps processes kind of things. I really like that workflow. And it, it feels like it could be extremely efficient. And then I look at the data center and, you know, people, you know, using a remote desktop to manage servers. And I'm like, oh, I would, I would love to see that transformed. And I just, it seems like the tooling isn't there yet. And I don't know okay. if Okay, well, may I ask you a question then? What was the last time you worked with assets in a data center? That's part of it is I, I'm also very far removed from the yeah. data center world. So I'm curious, you know, as close as boots on the ground as you are, what are you seeing in the modern data center in terms of tooling and processes? So there was a company called Packet, which was bought by Equinix, became Equinix Metal. Um, they had a provisioning tool called Tinkerbell. Which has been, which is open source. It's it's in uh, CNCF now, and it is for provisioning bare metal, right? What we use Equinix Metal was a variation thereof, you know, a little secret sauce to provision bare metal instances with whatever environment variables you wanted to, using you know, going through Tinkerbell, you can do through Terraform, you can do other things like that, right? So infrastructure as code does exist for the data center assets. Adele, we have CSM CSI models. Um, or CSM CSI modules that will allow you to provision container storage directly to our um, storage devices, right? Without needing an intermediary. Or they can also work with OpenShift, I think VMware, Tanzu, Rancher, and a few others, right? Um, so that you can provision storage um, and compute to some extent um, without having to go in remote. You're going to treat it like infrastructure as code. Um, uh, the iDRAC, you can still interact with, you know, with, um, with a remote desktop, but you can also interact with the API and anybody who's ever worked with the data center knows that iDRAC is a lifesaver, right? Um, it's like, it's like Dell recovery assistance console or something like that. Um, but, but there's also like telemetry around around not only your resource usage, but about sustainability and power output, heat output and stuff like that. All that information can come back to you directly using OTEL. So data centers have been working with the open source community um, to make, to deliver a more cloud-led experience, both for, for infrastructure uh, 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 provisioning, but also observability and observability where it matters for sustainability, not just capacity planning. Um, you know, we're working on things where you can figure out cost and bill back and charge back and everything like that. So, so the gap is not as large as you think it is. But again, people have to get out of their own heads on on what it what the what the experience is going to be like. 
Um, because there, no, there, you, there's, you, there's a consumption model challenge here because everybody's mm-hmm. used to the AWS API and that's how they're going to consume cloud. And then you bring it back on premises and try to do, you don't have the AWS API. You have some kind of an API or series of APIs, mm-hmm. perhaps, depending on what you're trying to provision and what tooling you're using, but it isn't the same. There's going to be some sort of operational impact. No. And honestly, like if I could wave a wand, I would have an omnibus universal provisioning API that could work with anything, right? And people have tried to build that for sale, right? But if there was at least just an API, an open API standard, right? That everyone could like, okay, well, our API, you know, interacts with this and these calls get into that. So that way you, you know, and, and we're, we're used to working with APIs. If, 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 uh, if AWS can create, you know, 748 services to launch a container that all interoperate with the same API, I'm sure the rest of the industry can do the same. Um, but, but in the end, right, you have to dedicate the resources to it and you have to tell people it's important. And I think that's the point. That's, that's one of the main things that I'm looking to do. And the folks, uh, in my, in the DevRel team that we have at Dell are looking to do is like, what resources can we put in and what help can we give the industry to figure out how we want to deliver uh, a cloud experience or how we want to deliver a provisioning experience? Um, that is smooth and easy for everybody. Cause you know, like if you're, if you're, if you're a, um, if you're a cloud formation shop, right. It's not like you can do, take it anywhere. Right. You know, so you've got, you know, but if you use like Ansible, Terra, Terraform or Pulumi, et cetera, any of these other, you know, kind of infrastructures code tools that are not proprietary, you've got options, right? I think Terraform is probably the one that's the most widely, uh, most widely used and most widely, you know, uh, usable. Um, and so, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's the standard as an example, but people create their own modules that interact with Terraform. It's just writing an API, mm-hmm. you know, that interacts with an API. Like that's, that's a good model for use. Um, and so I don't see why we can't do that for a lot more stuff or just have that be the standard, you know, for whether it's provisioning containers, whether it's provisioning hardware, whether it's provisioning storage, uh, you know, et, et cetera, et cetera. Like, um, so there's a lot of potential. For folks to be able to deliver a universal experience, we just need to be realize people to realize first that it's important, and then actually pick up and do it, and and train the folks who are going to be delivering on the on that promise. Well, look, if, pe- if people can figure out how to provision, you know, stuff in Kubernetes, they can figure out anything. <laughs> That's true. Just need the the support from the the managerial structure to let them get the training or give them the time to do it. Exactly. Not fires. And so, and so that's why when, you know, to, to, to Ethan's point, right. When people are talking about how they're going to cost cut or what it looks like in this, in this industry, right. That becomes very important because managerial can look like if we were to do this, that gives us more options, more options for saving money, more options for making money. Um, right. But that's so a strategic I, outlook. And, and we know you like strategy. I do. And I like strategy. But uh, sometimes the, the, the people, the, the finance department, they're not always about the strategy. <laughs> they're about the next quarter sometimes. It, it is very weird because if you, t- you, know, if you work, because I've worked extensively with finance, finance departments, finance departments are usually more strategic than anybody else in the company because they are used to forecasting and prediction as a way of life. And how this little thing that happened now will affect all those forecasts and predictions down the road. 
right? Engineers could do better by listening to finance and understanding that model because finance is all about predictability, right? And handling and, and resilience, right? Because think about it, your finance department has to be able to understand and react to uh, uh, swings in demand and cost and, and uh, you know, uh, income or, or and things like that, right? They have to be able to make your company resilient to it. And if they're, and if things need to change as far as how much they're putting out, right? They're going to know what they can do. That's still going to be sustainable. and What's not going to be sustainable. Um, and so it's interesting that a lot of times engineer fights with finance, but engineers and finance should be best friends. Well, go make friends with your finance person. I like it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's true, right? I, I I will I will be go so far as to say that finance can be better friends than engineers and sales are. But I mean, if we want to really, we really want to get some people upset, that's 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 the tea. Really want to stir the pot, yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I've been hearing, and I, I you've probably heard this too. Uh, getting back to like the process idea, uh, I've been hearing DevOps is dead. And that platform engineering is the way, the truth, and the light. And I just wanted to get your reaction and your thoughts on that, especially in lieu of the conversation we're having where we need people to learn new ways of doing things and maybe shrink down some of the abstractions we've been uh, getting comfortable with. People who say DevOps is dead never have an understanding of, understanding of what DevOps is in the first place. Cut and dry, plain and simple. You can ship that soundbite and it will be true, right? <laughs> DevOps is not dead. DevOps is now the default, right? As a culture, as a practice, DevOps is now the default. It's not a tool. It is not a person. It is not a department. It is a way you operate. DevOps includes platform engineers and platform engineering, right? But to say that DevOps is dead and platform engineers are the default is just somebody who's trying to sell a book or get on a talk. Um, it's, it's nonsense, right? Uh, platform engineering is exceedingly important. It's an important uh, skill set. It's an important, you know, kind of role, but it still falls within the realm of, of a successful DevOps culture to have those, just like SRE, right? <laughs> just like software engineers, just like, you know, uh, uh, you know, pretty much anything that goes in between idea that you whiteboard um, and, and uh, an application that a customer ingests. So I guess sort of round out the conversation. We, we've talked about a lot of different things. You mentioned layoffs. You know, layoffs have happened recently. And there's a definitely an opportunity there as companies look to maybe repatriate some of their applications on-prem. So if I, I've been laid off, let's say, and I'm looking for my next gig, what do you see as the core areas to focus on if, you, if you're trying to pick up a, a sustainable set of skills and a new job? I think that as we go into to play into you know the future here, I don't feel like folks who specialize in a specific engineering realm are going to be as hireable as others. And I say that to mean that people who have been in shops where devs did everything, right? If you're front-end dev or back-end dev or People have all these arguments on React or JS or whatever, right? Those specific technologies can go away, right? 
to, to, to be that specialized or to be that invested in this one thing is not, is not, uh, is not a resilient kind of career choice. Right. Um, maybe it's COBOL, right? Because that's not going away apparently ever or Fortran. Uh, but JavaScript, you know, React, Angular, I don't, I don't understand the, the, the framework wars myself, but, but picking up and understanding, actually understanding infrastructure, actually understanding what happens on the other side when you, when you uh, commit something to GitHub, right? What actually really happens, right? Understanding how the sausage is made and how it's delivered and being able to make that happen anywhere is really going to help you out. If not, even if only because you are now more hireable by companies that you may have to wear more hats at, right? But also because you'll have a better understanding of what's going on and you'll have context. So you can contribute at a much higher level to companies where they have to run a tighter ship financially because you understand the impact of what's happening when you hit commit. You understand what those servers are going to do. You understand how much data that's going to take. You understand the cost of that, right? But, but the, that is hard a, to, to package on a resume, Tim. That, that is difficult to market yourself that you have those skills unless you have the right human human looking at your resume as you tell that story that explains your your broad skill set and your understanding and your depth and your background so that they get it. I know how I'm going to plug this person in. What happens so often in, in with modern resumes, it feels like it's all about keyword searches. It's all about, do you have the certification? Do you have this particular skill set? Are you Terraform certified, et, et cetera? And so I think people that are hunting for work are caught in this difficult position where if I'm the hiring manager, I want the person you just described. If I'm on the other side looking for work, I feel like I've got to have all these specific skills, certifications on my resume, or I'm not going to get noticed. You know, I think it's interesting, you know, because you talk about the resume, my, my resume, I think now has reached five pages long and I, I will not cut it down for anybody or anything. <laughs> right. Um, but the most important thing on my resume is a summary of my skills, right? The, the beginning, the description, the objective, right? The narrative parts of my resume. That's what's important. Cover letter, maybe, right? But when you read my resume, the first thing you're going to read is my name, and then I'm going to give you my, my little short bio of what I'm doing. I'm going to tell you that I have a wide set of skills and that, that I understand this and I understand that. I go from the top to bottom, right? It's, it's, it's a good, healthy paragraph. I think it's actually two paragraphs. Use those narratives to talk about what you are and what you are, what you can do, right? And then use a resume to back that up. Uh, and I think what happens is, and, and not what happens, this is a very, very, very real thing. We in technology, right, in the tech community, as a group of engineers, are just awful storytellers. It's true, right? When you look at user stories, when you look at, especially project managers have to be storytellers, right? Have to be. Product managers have to be storytellers. They know have to know how to make stories. They have to know how to listen to stories. And if we cannot tell the story, right, we're going to have a hard time getting people to understand what it is we're trying to do, right? And so people who have that full understanding, right, or at least a, a fuller understanding, I should say, of what all is entailed with the process of creating something and then delivering it are usually going to be your better storytellers, right? Now, storytelling is a skill. Right. You can be a raconteur. You can be very comfortable with sitting and talking about things. And that's one way to tell a story, but it's not the only way to tell a story. Right. But 
I would much rather have read someone who's got two, three paragraphs, something like that, than go on somebody with GitHub who's all solid green. That just shows me you know how to game the GitHub algorithm. But that's it. That just tells you, you it tells you, you commit a lot of code. That doesn't mean you write it well. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's good at all. I, that's, I, I really like how you kind of tied it all in there because we started out talking about understanding context, having a conversation. And I think part of the hiring process is having that conversation and knowing how to tell your story and listen to the other side and what they truly need from their, from a prospective employee and being able to speak to that. And maybe yeah. it's not a fit and being okay with that. That's another big thing is don't shove yourself into a particular uh, you know, shape just because that's the shape of what they need at the time. I, not everybody has that luxury. And I, I want to acknowledge that. Like sometimes you just need a job, but assuming you've got a little bit of cushion and you can actually search around for the, the, the job that fits you, find one that actually fits. And, and, and let me expand upon that too, because I hear a lot of discourse about, well, if you make it too long, then people aren't going to read it or people aren't going to do that or people are going to do this. I've got all these resumes to go through, blah, blah. You know, if that's your... If that is your disposition, you're just so busy, then don't effing do the interviews. Have someone else who's not lazy, who actually cares about people and cares about finding a good candidate. You have them do the interviews, right? Because the the, the point where we're just lazy, we're going to look for what we're comfortable with, what we're used to looking for, and that's going to be good enough, leads you to really, really crappy outcomes. And I think that's, I think it's an awful way to do it is to cater to the whims of the, the arbitrary whims of an individual hiring manager. Like if you are not invested and looking for talent and looking for people who can really do good work, then don't do it. Right. And I think that's that's a great point to, to ride out on. Uh, Tim, if people want to hear more from you, and I think they might, where where can they find you on the interwebs? Where do, where do you have a presence? The best place to find me is on Twitter. I'm at El Chefe, E-L-C-H-E-F-E on Twitter. Um, Stay tuned and look at developer.dell.com. Uh, it's going to go undergo uh, uh, its own little reinvention here. And we're going to be turning it into a place that you're going to want to spend more time on. And you'll be able to see a lot more of my content there as well. Awesome. Well, Tim Banks, lead developer advocate from Dell Technologies. Thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. Thank you all too. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And hey, thank you, dear listener, for listening to the whole episode. Virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you've got suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear about them. You can hit either of us up on Twitter. We monitor day, day two cloud show, or you can fill out the request on our website, day2cloud.io. Hey, you know, it's a new year and day two cloud is looking for new sponsors. If you've got a way cool cloud product and you want to share it with our audience of IT professionals, you can become just such a day two cloud sponsor. You'll reach several thousand listeners, all of whom have problems to solve. Maybe your product fixes their problem, but they'll never know unless you tell them about your amazing solution. You can find out more at packetpushers.net slash sponsorship. And until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. 